All right, everybody. So today we have Brandon DeCruz on with us. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me. So this is our second attempt here after some glitchiness <laughs> on my end. Uh, so, you know, we were talking, I don't know actually when we started talking, my sense of time with like COVID and everything is so thrown off now. I had a patient earlier this week and I guess today's Monday. So already showing that everything's off, but I guess it was last week. And uh, I could have sworn I saw this patient like two months ago. And I looked at the date and it was like in March that I'd last saw him. Just like the few months that we were off and everything from COVID and everything's just so disordered for me. But I guess with you working in the large, I mean, you do a lot of stuff online, but then you have like the supplement stuff. Have you been terribly affected by it? Honestly, yeah. Uh, I'm based in the Northeast, as are you. I'm based in uh, New Jersey and I also have a place in New York. So the business that I run, I'm a national sales director at um, a New York-based supplement company called Innova Farm. So everything from like the production end, raw materials, uh, manufacturing, all that kind of stuff was kind of halted. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, we were in the position where we had a lot of products in-house. We had actually transferred over and had just purchased a manufacturing facility. So we were in a fortunate position where we could do a lot of our pill products. But the industry as a whole was put on halt because think about it in this perspective. Gyms were completely shut down. I know yeah. in Pennsylvania, you guys opened up a little bit earlier, but we just opened gyms in Jersey uh, the first week of September. So at this point, it's only yeah, been a month. Yeah. So I had accounts that, you know, I deal with a lot of gym accounts that were closed, you know, six plus months. So obviously that's, you know, they weren't able to operate as a business. So I wasn't able to sell it to them. And it was, it was pretty hard to just see so many people. I've, I've worked in this industry for 12 years. So to see people going through such hardships and, and to see all their hard work over the years, kind of, you know, some of them went yeah, to businesses and, and they were severely impacted. So I count my blessings every day. I was able to work full time the entire time through, uh, both in terms of my sports nutrition company, but as well as my online training. Um, but, you know, obviously we were all affected. Yeah. Yeah, man. It is crazy. I feel very bad for gym owners and restaurant owners right now. It's just like, it's ridiculous. But uh, yeah, man. So we, we connected whatever it was maybe two months ago. Um, you know, I noticed that you're just constantly shredded all year. And uh, so we, we started to talk about that. But as I, I said, when we were last tried to record, it's funny because and you, you mentioned that you had gotten this before that I definitely kind of pegged you as like a Jersey Shore meathead because you are actually <laughs> from Jersey and I am too. So I feel like I can say it. Um, but, you know, when we started talking, we both kind of made the comment that like, this is like an actually really nice conversation. Like this is an intellectual conversation that we were delving into different topics. And I was like, you know, let's just get you on the podcast because eventually the messages were going long. And what you had last message to me, I had a long response for it. I was like, let's just get you on and talk about it. So, you know, the first thing that we had talked about was refeeds. And I think it was just because like I was just finishing up my diet and I was starting to talk about after I was done. I was going to try to maintain leanness with this every third or fourth day refeed. And I have a friend who's done that pretty successfully. I've seen people do it successfully, but my main issue was that there was a lot of food focus because anytime you're depriving yourself of something, there's obviously going to be thoughts of when you're not going to be depriving yourself. Right. And so, you know, whether that's food or something else, it led to a lot of focus on it and being like that combined with being quite lean I found that it was like, okay, I'd have the refeed. Maybe the next day I wouldn't think too much about it. But then the next day and the next day it was just like, when can I eat again? And you had kind of talked about doing the reverse of that and having more of the five, two structure. So do you want to kind of get into what you found to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give some, some background to, to the listener, um, not only am I an online nutrition coach and uh, I run a supplement company, but I'm also a national level men's physique competitor. I've been fitness modeling for close to 10 years. So I have a lot of experience with dieting and I actually came from a disordered eating background. So when you were speaking about that, it was something that kind of hit home with me because in my teenage years, I, I had mentioned this on the previous time that we were speaking on this podcast. Um, I grew up in, in weight restricted sports. So I did um, you know, I competed in karate in, in two different disciplines and then also in, in long distance running. So I was always trying to keep my weight down. And as a young teenager, I had a real issue with food, uh, you know, centered around, you know, restrictive eating patterns, um, never like into binge eating and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, the fact that I was counting calories at 11 years old was was a little odd for, for most people to see. Yeah. So how I got into the the weight training uh, side of things was really through seeing that I was, I was rehabbing an injury and I realized that nutrition was something to fuel me, not to be scared of. Um, so when you were speaking on that, you know, I've now competed, uh, 13 times over the years. I've been competing mm -hmm. for six years. 
I coach a lot of physique athletes, uh, you know, from bikini to bodybuilders. And I see this repetitive pattern with, especially post diet where people go into these binge restrict habits. And so I'm very, um, into diet psychology. So Mm -hmm. I've taken a completely different route in terms of how I exit. You know, I'm always looking at an exit and a transition, um, strategy for post diet or post show, because it's really hard. Um, first of all, when you have a diet and you have a goal in mind, there's this driving force to, you know, induce the deficit. We had spoken about how you were on very, very low calories and you were yeah. motivated to do so because you're seeing results. But, you know, I'm going to qu- quote Lyle McDonald. He always says maintenance is this nebulous thing. Yeah. And, and by that, he means that there really is no like motivation or no, you know, real inspiration behind being at maintenance. So transitioning out of a diet is something that I consider to be just as important or more important than the fat loss phase itself. So how I've structured things in my own uh, you know, my own practices and with my clients as well, is I generally go from taking a structure of using a calorie cycle in a diet where I'll use a 5-2 strategy in terms of a deficit. I'll be in a deficit for five days per week and then do a two back-to-back day refeed where we bring back calories to maintenance or slightly above maintenance to reverse some of those metabolic adaptations, help fuel training performance. And then when we go, you know, into the reverse dieting phase and we transition out of that, once we've gotten them back to their what their real maintenance is, you know, post diet, um, I start using a five, two approach where I use two low days on my off training days, and then five days at maintenance or above calories, which allows me to fuel training performance, feel great on those days. And then also on those off days, first of all, we spoke about it. I usually use an intermittent fast because I find that it cuts down my, my food focus. I actually have less hunger if I compress my eating window. And it also allows me to modulate my calories a little more. So I'm at the point where I can eat more on those training days, but still maintain that relative maintenance caloric threshold throughout the week because I'm eating more on those, those training days. Right. Yeah. I mean, the diet psychology is super interesting. I mean, just like psychology in general and with this whole endeavor is very interesting because that to me is kind of the untapped area and what is an area of interest to me now, because not that the new studies on, you know, the best way to build muscle or lose fat are not interesting. They are. It's just at this point, so much is known about that, that what you're finding are differences. I mean, maybe one study shows a significant difference, but when you actually look at the data on the whole, you're talking very small differences, you know, maybe this one method or this diet, you lose fat a little faster, but by far the most important thing is like, are you consistent? How can we structure a plan that's going to allow you to be consistent, come out of it? Like you said, when you're done the diet, now are you going to be able to maintain? There's just so much into the psychology of it. And that's really where people fail. It's not because man, like if I just had this better plan, as far as like better macros or something, that really would have been the difference. I mean, it makes a small difference in my opinion, but not a huge one. Uh, and then what I liked about the five two, as far as when you're done the diet, so five at the higher level is that it makes it so that basically those low days are the anomaly, right? So we talked about a little bit about fasting. So I like intermittent fasting. I'm not currently doing it every day uh, just because of how my schedule is, but I do like it in general. I do incorporate one 24 hour fast per week. So basically like last night was the last time I ate. And then after we're done this podcast, I'll have my next meal and I like that one, just kind of a break for my GI, but two, I mean, it's, it's, it's one way to say, okay, here's a, basically I eat a thousand calories that day. So it's, you know, you get that deficit in that one day, the other days of the week. I mean, even for me to just maintain right now, let's say I want 3250 calories, right? Like that's probably about maintenance for me right now. If I have one day at a thousand on that fast day, one day at 2000, I get five days at about 4,000 calories which is quite a lot. I mean, unless you're just eating complete bullshit, like you can fit a lot of food into 4,000. And that's still basically total maintenance calories for me. And most days are good. Whereas before it was most days are still kind of suffering and basically feeling like I'm dieting. I mean, my food focus literally was probably about as high as it was when dieting, because now my metabolism has started to speed up a little bit and the hormones have kind of come back. Um, I, I just found that it was doable with enough willpower, but not terribly sustainable um, and just not enjoyable. Yeah. And at that point, it's not even worth it because you've already attained the goal of, of getting to your fat loss goal. And then it's almost like, why am I continuing to suffer and, and having this food focus and having this bad relationship with food? We were speaking about the fact that you were doing like five to 6,000 calorie high days, mm-hmm. but then going to 2,000 or less calories on these low days. And at that point, more days than not, yes, your average 
caloric intake throughout the week is at or above maintenance, but are you really reversing those metabolic adaptations that you suffered from? Because if you look at it, it's, it's when you, you're trying to reverse metabolic adaptation in terms of, you know, trying to get your hunger, you know, hormones and your signaling back to where it should be, you know, in terms of ghrelin coming down, leptin being restored, it's, it's over an extended period of time. So they've actually done studies, I'm sure you're familiar with them, uh, in women where they've done one massive overfeed, mm-hmm. where it was, um, I believe they, they got up to five or 6,000 calories where their actual maintenance um, threshold was between 15 to 1800 calories. And with that being said, they didn't see an increase in leptin, but when they did a two to three day, Right. With with just Lower that, calories, calories, yeah. no no higher, they saw a restoration in leptin. Now that's right. transient because they didn't look at when they got back into the diet, did leptin fall? And we know it would. But at the same time, it's like if you look at it from a physiological perspective and then combine it with what you're feeling psychologically, it's like it's really not worth it to take those drastic approaches unless it's like, you know, we we spoke about the old school way of doing things. We we got into like I did the cycle diet. Yeah. So for instance. I did the cyclical approach to dieting where I would diet six days a week. And then I'd have a one full day cheat day with, you know, hyper palatable foods, but mostly just very, you know, refined sugars and, and high carbohydrate food sources. And I would just load on that day. And then as I built my metabolism, quote unquote, I got to do a spike meal midweek. And then I would do the full spike day um, on that Saturday. And although that worked, you know, in terms of, I was young, I was, still in college. My metabolism was at a very good place. I had yet to diet really substantially or I hadn't done chronic dieting as I have at this point in my life. And it worked. It also started to get back into those patternings where I was, now I have to under eat and restrict myself during the week just to earn those, those one to one and a half days. And that type of, that was something that it keyed off in me. I said, listen, I've had an issue with this as a, as a child. I need to avoid this in, in, in general. So that's always something I've been very self-aware of. And it's something that's super prominent within uh, the fitness industry, which a lot of people don't talk about. I have yeah. so many, you know, I've trained a lot of um, IFBB pros. I've had the fortune to, you know, I have a couple of clients that have been to the Olympia and stuff. And you would think that these highly motivated, um, very competitive athletes would be the last people to suffer from these eating disorders, but they're the most prominent. They're the ones that take their bodies to the extreme and they'll compensate not only calorically by restricting themselves and doing, you know, overdoing cardio days, you know, prior and days following the binge, but also using exorbitant amount of drugs to compensate for what the damage that they did on those, those binge days. And it's, it's this vicious cycle of binge restrict that whenever I see people, you know, demonstrating those type of, especially my own clients demonstrating those type of qualities, I'm like quick to put the brakes on it and just, you know, try to, and not even scold them or make them feel bad about it because they're already feeling guilt as a result yeah. of the binges that they're having. And then also they're feeling, you know, restricted in their day-to-day life with the amount of food focus they have, but just saying, Hey, listen, let's look at a more sustainable approach because like you said, we know pretty much everything we need to know about dieting. Calorie balance is king. You know, obviously different macronutrient distributions could affect certain people differently, but we know that when it comes down to it, sufficient protein intake, you know, one gram per pound of, of body weight, you, you nail your protein, you have your essential fatty acids, you hit your minimum fat threshold for hormonal balance and things of that sort. And then you fill in the rest with carbs for, for training performance or for some, some people, you know, general lifestyle people might want to do a keto approach. But as long as calories are, are you know, calorie balance is met, everything else will fall into place. But if you're unable to adhere to the approach that you're taking, none of it will work. It doesn't matter if you have the best plan in the world. If you can't follow it and sustain it over the long term, it's, it's never going to work for you. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it is very common in this industry. It's funny, like, it's not funny, but I feel like, especially with women, almost everybody I see in the uh, like fitness industry, it's like some history of like an eating disorder, or it's like sometimes I'll I'll see from the content that they even listen to, like, whenever I hear a girl say like, Oh, like, I listen to like this, like happiness podcast, or like this, you know, love yourself podcast or whatever. It's like, yeah, because I'm sure you're listening to that, because you've had a lot of issues with that yourself. And it just seems extremely prominent that the the eating disorders, I mean, I've actually been shocked at the number of people who I've had consultations with, who have told me like, yeah, like, I just can't stop binging. And I guess for me, I have, I don't know, like, like you, I, I mean, I, you said you had no history of like really binging, but you restricted a lot. Yes. You know, I, I wrestled when I was young. Um, actually, while wrestling, I was bulking up because I started so skinny. But like you, I mean, <laughs> I was tracking calories when I was like 12 years old. And I definitely had the 
areas or times when I was like binging, but unlike a lot of people, I never seem to have a trigger in terms of, okay, so like one break from the diet or one binge day leads to just like, you know, massive binge days after like one after the other. Usually I would have a cheat day where it could be pretty excessive, but when it was done, it was done. Like it's never been like the next morning, something about going to sleep. And when you wake up the next day was always kind of a mental reset for me. But there are a lot of people who I've talked to where it's like, man, like they were doing well on a diet. And then all of a sudden it's like the whole last week they've been eating whatever. And it's like, you know, it's hard to do too much damage in one day. You definitely can. I mean, you can definitely undo the dieting you've done in the week in one day, but Lyle McDonald and I have talked about this before where it's like, there's, there's somewhat of a buffer in that one day because you're so glycogen depleted, you know, there's a thermic effect of food and increase in meat where it's like, yeah, maybe you didn't lose a lot of fat after that, but you probably didn't gain back that much. But when you have two, three, four days in a row, like you can really do a lot in, in that time frame, And it's, it's unfortunate to see how common that is. And a lot of it does come from extreme dieting practices, which is why, you know, you talked about my extreme methods at the end there. I was doing a thousand calories a day for two weeks, which is ridiculous. And every single time I talked about it, I said, I do not recommend this. Do not do this. I'm just experimenting to see what happens. But again, I'll say it, don't do that. <laughs> it was just to see, you know, for me, what would happen. No, I couldn't agree more. Honestly, um, I see when, when you speak about the fact that you've done the excessive cheat days and it hasn't rolled over, you're the exception to the rule though. And, and I am too. So we could go out and we could have, you know, you know, a full day of cheating, uh, you know, eating really hyperplatable foods and things of that sort. And, and get what we want out of that day and be good the next day to reset. But we're disciplined. We've been doing this a really long time. Right. So already, it's already ingrained in our psychology. But a lot of people, they don't have that. And so they get like this, you know, they talk about the, the what the fuck effect yeah. where, you know, they go off someone, you know, veers off their meal plan and they make one, you know, error or one miscalculation or, or they just decide, you know, they miss a meal and they make up for it in another, you know, another fashion where they just go off the diet with one meal and then it trickles over and it's almost like a domino effect. And I see that so prevalent, you know, sometimes I'll have check-ins where I'll have athletes that are a couple days late in their check-in and notice their weights up. And, and I'll ask him right off the bat. Usually if I don't hear from a client that's supposed to check in on a, you know, they have a designated day within 24 hours. First of all, I'm concerned about what's going on with them because I hear from them on a once or twice weekly basis, but I'll reach out and just say, Hey, is everything all right? You missed your check-in just, you know, want to check in on you. And a lot of times when it's taken a couple of days for them to even get back to that initial email, first of all, I yeah. know something's up, right. but also a lot of times they'll come to me and they'll say, and it's out of embarrassment. Listen, you know, I went off the diet. I had an unplanned cheat and then it just spiraled into, you know, me eating you know, way off the plan for days to come. And it's like this disinhibition reflex where they just can't stop themselves. And it's like, they got that dopamine head from, from this food that they haven't, you know, had in their plan or, you know, they, they went from rigid restraint to trying to have flexible restraint, but they failed, you know, at both attempts. So it, it's something that it's super prevalent. You know, you see a lot of bikini athletes, you see a lot of physique athletes that they no longer do this because they've ruined their relationship with food from being overly restrictive and then going into binge eating episodes where they've realized, Hey, this isn't good for my, my physique nor for my health, you know, both mentally and physically. So it's a lot of people like that, but the one thing that you did hit on, and I'll tell you this from my own experience, this is before I ever read into the research. When I first started doing the cycle diet, which um, I have to give you know, credit to Scott Abel, who was a, a Canadian mm -hmm. coach back in the day on the boards who that's, I read the book and I learned from him and also Alan Crest, who's an IFB pro who implemented that into my program years ago. Uh, I never noticed fat gain from that, but it was that one day period. It was never consecutive days in a row. You had a window. So you started at six to eight hours. I know Skip Hill did this back in the day with yeah. skip loading. You start with a window and it might be 68 hours and then you slowly and incrementally build that. But if you're not hitting back to baseline by the next time that you had that. So for instance, in my case, it was Saturdays. So I would hit, you know, a low baseline, you know, a lowered weight, say on Friday or Thursday, that Saturday, I would have that cheat day. Um, and then if I didn't hit baseline again by Friday, I wasn't having that, that off plan day, but I, I kept hitting that. And what you were saying about, and you've spoken with Lyle McDonald about, there's only so much damage you can do in 24 hours. Right. Now I I'm going to put a caveat on that. Cause I don't want people to hear that and be the person. Cause I've had clients that have done this where you give them a window and you say a day, Hey, have an off plan day. You know, you're on vacation. You just had a competition. I want you to eat off plan for the day. And they wake up at 1201 and they start <laughs> 
you know, from 1201 to 12 midnight, they're eating within that 24 hours. And that's where you really can do damage. And you can obviously undo a deficit with, you know, an extremely high surplus of calories. But I remember reading some research that um, there was like a carb loading, an overfeeding study where they did 700 grams, 900 grams of carbs and 900 grams of carbs. And there was no fat gain and there was still fat oxidation happening during the 700 gram day. But once they went on to 900 grams of carbs, the next day was into the 48 and 72 hour period. That's when they started to, you know, de novo lipogenesis and started converting carbs into fat tissue, into adipose tissue. And so that kind of shows that within one day, there's only so much you could do. But if you continue that, it's going to have a compounding effect. And that's where we see people having these negative rebounds post diet, where they went from, you know, we've all seen people, whether it be a show or just a diet, where we've spoken about your cruise, where you go from being in your leanest state. First of all, your fat cells are, are super uh, receptive. You know, people think that they're getting sure. this show rebound where they're going to, you know, it's their anabolic rebound where it's more like an anabolic rebound for your fat cells. Sure. You know, you're expanding fat cells. You could, they say that you could, um, you know, get more fat cells during that time period, but a lot of people blow up. You know, I've seen, unfortunately, people 20, 30 pounds above their stage weight. I just had a friend, he's, he's 22 pounds above his stage weight and he competed. Uh, last Saturday. So now we're, we're nineties post-show, but within the first week he was 20 pounds up Yeah, suffering yeah. from edema. And now he has all these side effects. You got to think about your kidney values and just the fact that you went from your best shape in your life to now looking, you know, worse than you did when you started your prep. That's, that's a huge psychological effect. Yeah. I, uh, my probably like least healthy peers, I was never somebody who like drank a lot or like, you know, was in like a bunch of drugs or anything like that. But if I think of like a period where I was like, damn, that was like not so good for me. It was when senior year, we all went on a cruise, kind of like a graduation bro cruise kind of thing. And I had dieted down like pretty seriously. And by the end of a five day cruise, I had put on 20 pounds. The edema was ridiculous. And it was like the one time where I was like, well, it's, I don't really drink much. So let me just like go all out. And so the last night I had 22 drinks in like four hours. And I don't know like how I didn't like die. I remember everything. I think I just have like a high tolerance to things, I guess. Um, but yeah, that was like, when I look at it, I was like, that was not such a good idea. <laughs> but, now let me ask you, yeah. if you were to do it again, would you diet? Because I, I always have this conversation with clients of mine, with friends of mine. Would you have dieted in? Because this is, I have a different approach to this. Mm-hmm. When someone tells me they want to diet for a vacation, I honestly, I usually have them ready a couple of weeks earlier. I plan for it. And then I reverse diet them into it. Because when you go from being your leanest state, you just finished oh, yeah. diet, you're at your lowest calories, you're metabolically adapted. And then you get that surge. First of all, it's it's really hard to, to stop your appetite. I mean, your appetite's through the oh, roof. Yeah. It's really hard to, especially in a cruise where it's, uh, you know. Unlimited all the time, for sure. And then also the fact that your metabolism is literally at its lowest point. Yeah. So would you in the future, you know, either not get to that that low of a state of body fat or would you reverse out and, and try to incrementally increase your calories before going into that? So I have a comprehensive answer to this because it's something I've thought about a lot because I've gone on six cruises now. So that was my third cruise, I think. Um, and so basically the first one, I was like a kid. So I didn't care that much about food. I was like 10. Um, actually that was, you know, the first time I died it down was for when I was 10 going on to my cruise. And my dad had told me, cause I was kind of a pudgy kid and he, he, the way he tried to frame it for me was like, Oh, you know, if you lose weight, you can eat more on the cruise. So that's when I literally first started, like 10 years old, started losing weight, started getting the compliments. And then from there, so um, 2011 was my second cruise. I was 20, binged the entire time, like literally just ate as much as I could for seven days. It was absurd. That one I gained like 10 pounds, which was more actual fat, but less water. The senior year one was just like an unbelievable amount of water. Um, so what I had since done, I, in my 2018 one, I dieted down exactly like you said, I got done about a month beforehand and I reversed out and that was significantly better. Like that was just a much better decision. By that point, my calories had been raised maybe like 800 or so per day. I was feeling better. I still did eat a lot on the cruise. I mean, for me, food is definitely part of the enjoyment of trips and vacations. I know some people still try to stay like exactly on their diet. I don't personally have a problem with, you know, when there's a certain event or anything, like for instance, I went to the beach this past weekend for that time that we were there. I definitely loosened up my diet quite a bit. I'm up like a pound or two today and within a day or two, that'll be gone. So I'm fine with that sort of thing. But again, 
I know myself enough to know how to control it and when I want to control it. So I totally agree. Reversing out of it before vacation is a very good idea or honestly, just don't diet down at all. I mean, because for that, I did still gain, instead of gaining 10 pounds, I gained maybe seven pounds and then maybe two of it was like legitimate fat gain or something. If I had to guess, you know, it wasn't too bad. Um, but I went on my last cruise in 2019 and I didn't diet down at all. So I, w- I went on to the cruise at 200 pounds and even, I mean, I literally felt like I was eating whatever I wanted on that cruise and I still left the cruise at 200 pounds. Like I did not gain any weight. And this was like a European cruise where I was eating all this food in Italy and Greece, Spain. And, you know, so I have another cruise potentially, you know, depending on the state of the world, uh, with <laughs> like a big group of friends going, there's like eight of us potentially going next June. And I want to be lean for it, but I'm definitely not going to be like crash dieting hard into it or anything like that. Yeah. So I had, um, I've had similar experiences with traveling. I've never had like, you know, big rebounds and things of that sort, but I have noticed that there's been years that I've dieted. I I work in the sports nutrition industry. So going to things like the Olympia and the Arnold Expos are huge for me. So that's something I do every single year. Uh, It's been weird. This is the first year that I, you know, obviously I haven't been out the Olympia with it being pushed back. But every year we had a thing where we would diet into the Olympia. You know, there's pool parties there and it's still right, you know, the culmination of summer. It's second week of September. So there was um, years that I've been extremely dieted down. So for instance, uh, two years ago, I did North Americans, which is a national pro qualifier uh, for the MPC. And I went to the Olympia the following week. So I was literally a week post show, still in stage condition. And I noticed that I had to be extremely um, selective about my food sourcing. I literally had to eat just like I would be in a reverse diet because I was, you know, subject to, to having, you know, weight regain and, and rebound and not feeling well either. You know, you go through a restrictive period of time, especially like a contest prep and you haven't had dairy and, and certain food sources. So not only are you susceptible to, to rebounding in terms of weight gain, but also like your GI is just sensitive to those things. So that's always been something that I've been very um, weary of, like, if I'm going to do a diet, make sure I reverse out, give it a couple of weeks, get back to a nice maintenance calorie threshold that I can enjoy myself when I go on vacation. Um, because the years, like you were saying that the year that you went away recently, that you were at 200 pounds and you came back at the same weight, there's been years that I went on vacation and I'm in, you know, a maintenance phase or I'm in a surplus and I leave and I eat whatever I want essentially. And, and obviously I have good dietary principles. Right. You know, I'm always going to make sure that I have things that are nutrient dense food sources, you know, micronutrients. I'm going to include veggies and fruit with each meal. Um, obviously good protein portions, but the rest, you know, maybe I'll have sweet potato fries or things of that sort. That's right. not something that I would, I would eat generally, but I would usually come back with, with actually being lighter a lot of times just because yeah. my energy expenditure is up my stress levels my cortisol levels are are you know lowered because I'm on vacation I'm obviously not dealing with work and things of that sort I'm sleeping better and I had that experience with a lot of clients where some are super stressed they're they're the type like me they're neurotic you know they're the people that have been counting calories and macros for years they've right. been super rigid and, and restrictive with themselves they've done competitions and they worry and I've been in that place too where I used to worry before I went on vacations and now I know hey at least as long as I stick to certain dietary principles and make sure I eat my protein portions first. I'm not just eating, you know, I'm not snacking all day. As long as I have certain key principles that I would utilize any other day of the year when I'm on vacation, I'm either going to stay weight stable or I'm usually going to lose weight, you know, just due to the lack of stress. So that's why I was interested in in hearing your opinion on, you know, dieting right into a cruise or or doing it in a different fashion. For sure. Yeah. I almost, I mean, I pretty much never would recommend dieting right into a vacation. I mean, maybe some rare instances that I would be an exception, but um, I can't really think of any good ones for the most part, you know, you want to get ahead of it. And um, there's no reason, even like if it's a couple weeks, just a couple weeks after you're done a diet, if you can reverse, you'll start to feel so much better. Um, and I, I know when we were talking and you know, one of the main things we talked about refeeds, and we also kind of just kind of reminisced a little bit about college days. And we we're talking about bulking up with the bros and everything. And I think that's one of those things where in the moment, you know, you, you mentioned you're kind of neurotic and with this area, I definitely am. And it was always like, everything's got to be perfect. And unfortunately it, was harder to enjoy because I was always looking for like, you know, the gains and the next amount of progress I could get. Whereas in hindsight, I look back and I was like, man, like those really were great days when you're like in college, just like going to the dining hall with your friends and everything. And you mentioned that you were around some pretty good athletes, right? And, and that was significant motivation for you. So I don't know if you want to touch on that. 
Yeah, no, I was very fortunate. Um, one thing that I will say when we were first getting into fitness, I know you can attest to this. There wasn't a lot of information first and foremost. It wasn't the information age, but like we've spoken about in previous like messages and conversations, we grew up on the forums and in magazines. So we were only exposed to certain things. And luckily both of us seem to have been exposed to pretty, you know, evidence-based before evidence-based was really, you know, prominent. Right. Um, people that actually exposed good, good knowledge base and things of that sort and actual like the real, you know, facts and the real basics. And, and so that got ingrained in us, but also there wasn't as much talk about genetics. You know, that was one um, principle that I honestly didn't even realize how important that was in bodybuilding. So I was kind of naive and that naivety actually benefited me. It's, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. So I went to college and actually my first roommate at Monmouth, uh, the university I attended was a national champion wrestler. He had won three state titles and a national championship. And our first year as freshman, he was 18 years old, putting up 485 on incline bench. Yeah, 100% natural. You know what I mean? Just a, a sheer freak of nature. And then I had several friends that played in the NFL. And that one individual, his name is Jimmy Lawson. He actually trains with Cain Velasquez, which is the former heavyweight champion of the world. Um, when he's in Jersey, that's when he's in California. When he's in Jersey, he trains with Frank Edgar, who's another UFC, former uh, UFC champion. So I was around this pedigree of athletes. I lived in athletes housing the first couple of years I was there. You know, I had aspirations to play college ball. Um, but I blew up my knee, so that wasn't in the cards. But at the same time, I grew up or I lived around individuals that were very high ranking athletes and just they were extraordinary, both genetically and then also in terms of their work ethic. So that type of work ethic was ingrained in me. I would get up at 5 a.m. when they did their morning running and I would do my first session of the day. And when we're in college and we've spoken about this, you have you know, not all the time in the world, but a lot more time than we have now. So I would do two a day training sessions and I would do the old Jay Cutler splits where he would do, you know, either a back session in the AM and a back session in the PM and, you know, just double the volume or maybe a chest session in the AM, chest, uh, a back session in the PM. And so I was really able, I, I just got engulfed in this, in this atmosphere where people were, first of all, high achievers. And so I got to see people that were, you know, it's, it's funny. One of my friends, Clark, he ended up playing arena football uh, professionally. I put him on a diet for six weeks and he gained 12 pounds of lean tissue and ran a 4.31 in the 40 at over 200 pounds. Like he was top, you know, these are top end genetics and things that although at that time I didn't realize it was just something special. And it was, it, it pushed me to work harder. And I think if I was in this generation, so if I was, you know, 10 years younger and I knew about genetics, that would actually discourage me because I would see, Hey, listen, it's taken me, you know, my, it took me years in college to put on 12 pounds of tissue. And he did this in six weeks, you know, it would have keyed off to me, but I didn't think like that. All I thought about was he's a really hard worker. He's, he's working his ass off. He finally got his diet right. And now he's responding well. It wasn't this automatic, you know, assumption like, oh, he's more genetically gifted than me. That, that's why he's, you know, attaining these results. So, you know, I value these experiences, especially looking back. I was able to be around people that were very high level athletes in other disciplines other than bodybuilding, where genetics are, are all the talk. Um, but at the same time, I was around a good amount of competitive bodybuilders um, who also, you know, really set the foundation for me to want to compete because when I got into this, I was, I did fitness modeling throughout college. So there was no men's physique. There was only bodybuilding at the time. So in my mind, I was, you know, I was into bodybuilding, but I just, you know, being six, two and having more of a slender frame, I didn't think that was in the cards for me, nor did I want that. But little by little, I was around people that were, you know, getting into men's physique during its early days and they pushed me and it, it got me into a different competitive atmosphere where I said, all right, well, I can't play college sports, you know, but I'm really into this and I, I like the disciplined lifestyle and I like living like an athlete and I love bodybuilding. Now I could, you know, turn this, you know, this passion into another direction. For sure. So did I hear you right that you said that your friend was on a diet for six weeks? Is that what you said? Six weeks. Six weeks. And you, you said he put on 12 pounds of lean tissue? Yes. It was so, honestly, I look back now and I'm thinking about those statistics. And even when I say it, it's hard for me now to say that, but I literally saw his body composition. He went through a recomp and it was not that he lost body fat, but he stayed at the same amount of body fat and he increased scale weight. And he went from about 201 to 213 in that six to seven week span. And now mind you, I want you to keep in mind, this kid was under consuming protein. I mean, he would eat like two protein servings a day. He would eat Doritos. Like it just just junk food all the time, whatever we had in the dining hall. And then I got him into, you know, just honestly, it was a bro diet. It was chicken, rice, broccoli, mm -hmm. very 
simple, basic meals, but I was eating five, six times a day since I was in high school. I was using protein shakes. I was taking creatine. So now we can, we could say that some of it was water weight, you know, things of that sort. But he put on, an, I mean, his whole composition changed and his athleticism was still right there. And it was just amazing to see. And it's stuff that I look back at and I'm like, you know, sometimes people say body composition or body recomp isn't possible unless you're extremely overweight, you're a training newbie, um, or you're using enhancements. And in, in certain cases I've seen personally, and even if you look at the literature, there's been amazing cases where people have increased the amount of, you know, skeletal muscle tissue to have lose a substantial amount of body fat and they've been ath athletes, but it's in the case that yes, they're trained, but they're trained in athletic training in terms of, you know, speed conditioning and that sort. When they go to a bodybuilding type program, they're training with someone that just trains for hypertrophy. They're finally getting sufficient amounts of protein. They're responding, you know, extremely well, especially if they're genetically gifted. Did you listen to the podcast on iron culture with Chris, um, Barakat? He was just I'm about halfway well. through it, to be honest with you. I have not. Okay. It's, it's funny because funny that he, he referenced, I did look into. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this now because we didn't get to, like you didn't mention that the first time we tried recording this, we hadn't gotten that far yet, but that's like literally exactly what me and Chris were talking about. And that's also, there's, I guess, kind of like a controversy right now. Like people in Lyle McDonald's group are like, you know, talking all this crap on that, how that's not possible. And people in, you know, maybe like on the iron culture podcast are saying some of these recomps are very possible. Um, I gave my opinion in the podcast with Chris. So if people you know, want to see it, they can kind of check that podcast out. I do think some pretty incredible things are possible when you have amazing genetics and somebody who has untapped genetics or potential, I should say, you know, obviously, you know, if, if you take the best body, the best athlete you've seen, and we'll even keep it with naturals. Obviously you could have somebody with those level genetics who just wasn't doing much right. And in that situation, you could see a period that's almost like new noob gains because there was just so much untapped potential. One of the things I said to Chris is like one of the reasons that I'm skeptical of it is that I've not skeptical, maybe skeptical is the right word, but basically I compare a lot to myself like we all do, right? We all kind of base our own experiences. And for me, like kind of sounds like with you, from day one, I had sufficient protein. I knew to sleep eight hours a day. I had proper frequency, all these things. So I've never in my life had this big read comp because I've always been doing things at least 90% optimally. I've never taken a long time off from training. So like my friends who take off for months and then come back, obviously they read comp. Like I never had anything like that. So having always done things at least close to optimal, I just, I've never experienced that, but I've, I've certainly seen some pretty crazy things. I think one area that we might disagree with and not it's more just like different perspectives of where we come from is the talk of you know the genetics and if it's a good thing or a bad thing to talk about and i think this this goes it's a similar argument to people talking about performance enhancing drugs right and people will say you'll get the one camp that says you know what who cares who's taking anything you should just use it as motivation and you know i don't care if this person is on drugs or not it's amazing that they've done this and therefore like it's motivation and the counter argument to that is, look, the problem is it's unrealistic expectations. You know, if I think, you know, Ronnie Coleman's natural, then, and, or especially, obviously this is a big thing with somebody, if they're selling something, of course, and if, if they're selling something like on T Nation back in the day, they'd sell these programs. And it's like, dude, like, you know, like Christian Thibodeau was always my example where like, I'll always have a little bit. Remember that easy recomp you made? Do you remember um, iBodybuilder? Do you remember that program? I do so iRobot was the movie and they came out with iBodybuilder and they hyped the shit out of this thing. And it was talking about these like unbelievable gains that they were making all these things, sold it for whatever amount of money you needed to take their mag 10 supplement and all this bullshit. And it's like, they were claiming, I remember when he came out a couple of years ago that he had some kidney issues and he was like, okay, I admit that I did steroids one time in football when I was like 18. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Like you were 245 shredded at five, nine while doing all this stuff. And like, I do understand that like in the industry, you can't just be out there talking about all this stuff you're doing, but it, it's just, it's hard. And again, obviously like I am a little cynical about it because I had these different expectations. And so for the same reason in talking about genetics, I fully understand that like, it depends on who you're talking to. Most people do not push themselves hard enough. Most people have not given it their all. 
And so for those people, they don't need to hear, and this is probably the third or fourth time I said this in the podcast, where those people don't need to hear about, oh, you know, do you even have the genetic potential? Because it's like, unless you've been putting everything into it for at least five years, at least five years to see where that potential is, you're not even going to have an idea. I think the reason why I find genetics very important is because it's, you know, there are, there's like a story of this kid who was like very good in certain subjects and he kept trying to excel at something that he just did not have the skills for. And it actually led to him being like depressed. It's actually one of the reasons that like in a lot of European countries, I've heard that they will take these assessments and they'll talk about like what, yeah, like what you could be good at and maybe what would not be the best thing for you. And it's not like you couldn't do this profession, but there's probably things towards what they're, they're predisposed to being good at. Right. Right. And so I look at like my genetics and I always said that like everybody knows that guy who, you know, has amazing genetics and he thinks it's just his hard work, right? He thinks it's just because, because oftentimes they, they legitimately have worked very hard right now. If you're a coach, if you've been around a lot of people, then you probably know that, you know, if like, for instance, you probably have decent genetics, but you've coached a lot of people. So I'm sure you've seen people on both ends of the spectrum, right? You've seen Got people it with there, there genetics are so amazing. Many things that I've done, uh, you know, I, I pride myself on, on taking the optimal approach and, and sometimes there is no optimal approach, but if there is something that's research back that I, you know, can combine both research with evidence as well as with my anecdote, I will utilize it day in and day out. And I'm extremely structured. That's why initially when you reached out to me, it was about me staying lean. So, you know, all the time. And I said, you know, I, I put a caveat on that. I said, listen, I'm extremely regimented. I am, I eat you know, five meals per day, day in and day out. It's not that I'm special or anything. It's not a genetic gift. And I actually sent you pictures of me mm-hmm. in college, you and know, bulked up to 250. And I was not, I don't come from a lean set point, which is why I was really restricted as a kid with weight restricted activities because I was a little bit on the heavier side. So it's not that I have great genetics for being lean. It's that I'm extremely disciplined, but I will say at the same point that I, I do have, I'm very fortunate that I do have certain clients that, you know, they're Olympian caliber, you know, men's physique competitors. And it's not that they can do anything and get a result, but it's that they can do things less optimally and get as good or better a result than I can, or you can doing things perfectly. And I think that's a big differentiating factor that, like I was saying, I don't think knowing about genetics or not knowing, I, I don't take a stance on that, but I think it was good early on that I thought it was just about hard work. You know, because if I had seen the the accolades that my friends and those around me, you know, were achieving and the results they were getting, and I only contributed to genetics and try to analyze and say, man, they're not doing anything right. You know, if I really was was self-aware at the time and I really was cr- looking at things with a critical eye, it might have frustrated me. And I might have said, listen, my friends are, you know, training for football, but look as good as I do. And I fitness model and I, I train for hypertrophy day in, day out. It might have discouraged me, but instead, because I didn't realize that until I had left college, I kept pushing because I, I wanted to beat them and I was, I wanted to be competitive with them. So it kept me in this frame of mind that I'm going to outwork them, but I knew that that hard work was not going to do it alone because I, I I did know internally that I did not have the genetics to exceed them. But what I could do was I could take an intelligent approach, which they were unwilling to either do the research or to implement in their daily lifestyle. And that's where I've come to terms with this. You know, one of my best friends, he was top 20 in the world in men's physique. And he always tells me, he always reminds me of this. He's like, if you had my genetics, you would be at the top of, you know, the Olympia caliber because of what you know and, and the principles that you that you're able to integrate in your lifestyle and your discipline. And some people would take that as like a discouraging thing. Like, cause that's not, inc- honestly, if you think about it, it's not encouraging. He's saying, Hey, listen, if you had better genetics, right. you'd be better. You'd look oh, better. Yeah. You'd look that great. You put a lot of effort Stevenson, right? Absolutely. So I had him on and he said to me, he's like, you know, <laughs> it, it was like a compliment, but also like sucks in the way. Cause he said, you know, if it was something like, you know, if it wasn't for genetics, like you would be Mr. Olympia. Like, I don't know. I mean, this is coming from Scott Stevenson who is known for like, you know, working his ass off. And he's like, I don't know anybody who's worked harder than you have, which I take as a great compliment, but it's also like, yeah, I'm six one and like one eighty five. Like it's just, and the reason I emphasize it and what I was going to say before is if let's say I had amazing genetics, I would have thought that the reason that I was bigger than everybody else was strictly because of my hard work, because I did you know, cross on my T's, dot on my eyes. And I would have thought all my friends who were smaller than me, I would have thought you guys just don't work as hard as me, which would have been true. 
but not the only reason. So I understand, like as frustrating as it is for all of us to hear the genetically gifted say it's just a hard work when we know it's not just that. Not at all. I, I understand where that comes from because I have also worked very hard. I think though, and again, I, I it's hard to know like, you know, what percentile my genetics would be in. Cause obviously in the fitness industry, we talked before about how people gravitate towards what they excel at. So we are working with a bunch of people who excel at this. That's why they're still doing it. You do have the exceptions of the people who continue, maybe like myself, who didn't excel, but most people would have just done something else. So especially in today's day and age, because how social yeah. media is, we were lucky that True. you remember in the forums, a lot of people didn't even have a photo. I, I'll tell you right. personally, yeah. when I was <laughs> early teen and I was getting into this, I was on intense muscle and pro muscle. Mm-hmm. I was a bored lurker. I would yeah. just read posts. I never posted. I was embarrassed. You know, I'm 14, 15 years old. I hardly know what I'm doing. And I'm just trying to learn. And yes, there were certain people that had, you know, that I, I gravitated towards mountain dog and Dante and, and Scott Stevenson, you know, um, homonunculus, you know what I mean? And yeah, I was yeah. reading every post that they had. And years later, now I know these were really good sources, but there were guys on there that had no idea what they were doing and they were, you know, espousing, you know, information and you didn't know who to go to. But at the same time, had I been in a generation a little bit, if we had been a little bit older and we were only seeing social media stuff and everyone looked perfect because you only see, and that's why I I made it a point to tell you, Hey, listen, yeah, I I stay lean year round, but it's through a lot of hard work. Like, don't think this is easy. And I always make that, that point. I I make a post every couple months where I, I talk about the reality of being shredded. You know, it sucks. (laughs) <laughs> get to a point you're starving you feel like shit you can't sleep you're waking up with this 3 a.m cortisol response you're just having an adrenaline dump and i always make it very clear to competitors that come to me and they say listen i want to look like you are. i want to get as lean as you are i want to get as lean as one of your athletes especially you know right now i'm, I'm training a former olympian um for two pro shows he's got one coming up this weekend and the following weekend and he gets inside out peeled it's it's disgusting yeah but he has to suffer and yes he's genetically gifted but i've had to bring his calories down and there's been times that me myself you know i compete you know i'm generally in shape around 210 pounds and i've been on 15 1600 calories a day for extended periods of time and most people would look at me and say you know they wouldn't believe that but there are certain extremes that you have to take it to and and it, it it's not easy it's you know there is a cost for everything that you do in life And with that being said, there's a lot of people that, and that's a big issue that I have with social media is that a lot of guys, they'll have like this shredded ab pic and they'll have like a burger in front of them. Like that's not reality. And that's why I'm so glad that I grew up in the generation that I did where I would have, I would rather things be now where you just looked at people and you, you saw their information and what they were able to, to bring to the industry or what type of value they were able to deliver. And that's what I try to do with every post that I make. I try to make it educational because although I had better engagement when I put a motivational quote post and just put up a ab shot, yeah. I feel like I'm giving back more by actually giving people real information, evidence back, research back that I've taken time to, to look into, dive into, apply to myself, apply to my clients. And then it's stuff that's applicable to anyone, whether they're genetically gifted or not. Whereas a lot of, you know, these social media influencers, they're really not giving back anything to the community. They're riding off their genetics and their hard work and, and, you know, making things look like, yeah, you can eat whatever you want and get shredded. That's really not the case. You can eat whatever you want, but it's within a certain calorie limit. So you might be eating 1500 calories or whatever you want, but you're still starving. Yeah. I mean, even that guy, I don't follow him. That that guy, uh, Joe Lindler, um, he, I forget his name on Instagram, Joe, Joe Stetics. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like very well known, but he, I mean, he is the reason that his name has come up even more recently is he admitted to finally to like being on gear. Um, he says he's on TRT now, but I, who obviously knows, but he stays lean year round. But he even says like, even for me being on gear, this is still really hard to maintain this leanness. Now, obviously the gear is going to make it easier on, on the whole, but obviously most of these people do still work very hard. And, and I don't, I don't think most people ever say it's, it's not hard work at all. There's a genetic component. There is, you know, other factors that come into play. I'm curious, you know, you've worked with a lot of clients. If you take somebody you've seen maybe on the low end of the spectrum genetically, one, my first question is, you know, what would that example of that be? If you can say like, okay, maybe after X amount of years, he was only this or whatever, obviously you don't give like a name or anything, but yeah, two, um, <laughs> two, if you had those genetics, 
do you think your perspective here would be different? Obviously it's hard to put yourself in those shoes, but. Yeah. So from my perspective, I have had people that I hate to use labels. Um, I hate, you know, somatic types and things of that sort, but I would Mm -hmm. consider there's been certain clients of mine that I would, if I had to label them, they are hard gainers to a T Mm -hmm. no matter what they do. It's extremely hard for them to accrue muscle tissue. Um, it doesn't matter if their diet is nailed. And some some of these people were early on clients where I was still working in a gym and I was doing their nutrition. So I knew they were nailing it in the gym. Yeah. And that's the one component for online training, which is hard, which is a lot of times if I have someone that I see is not responding to the program, but I know that they're dietarily adherent to the nutrition plan that I've set out for them, I'll get training videos because a lot of times it is that they're not working hard enough. That is a key component to this. And if you're not working hard and you're not consistent, you're not going to get results. But there are certain people that have come to me where I would label them as a hard gainer and I've run them through volume accumulation mesocycles because you know a lot of times they see in research, you know, Menno always speaks about this, that sometimes you're just not providing enough of a stimulus. Yeah. But we accumulated their volume to the point where they can't even recover. So, so now we're, we're providing too much of a stimulus and they're still not gaining, gaining um, tissue. And there's, there was an individual. And honestly, I put a lot of blame on myself for this. And it was a, a hard relationship to have as a, a coach client because he was with me for close to two years and he was fairly new when he came to me, a newer trainee, a beginner, two to three years in the gym. Um, his knowledge base wasn't that advanced, but he was good with his nutrition. Um, he actually was studying dietetics, was more into the nutritional side. So he had already nailed protein, adequate protein intake. He had played tennis in college. So he was athletic, but for building muscle, he wasn't, you know, he didn't come to me with a solid base. Right. Uh, and generally, if you remember, even with good genetics or subpar genetics, your first couple of years are the years that you make the most gains without a shadow of a doubt. You know, I've seen enhanced guys that still have not accumulated as much tissue as they did their first, say three to five years of nailing training. Right. After that, I'm not saying it goes downhill, but the rate of progression really slows down. And we see that in the natural, uh, natural communities. I have a lot of natural clients myself um, that are at the upper end, either pro or they're going for their pro card. And now they're at year eight to 10 of training. And it's like, they's gaining one pound, per year, if yeah, that, right. and that's if they're lucky and they're nailing every variable. I mean, we got nutrient timing down to a T protein intake, you know, they're volume, they're, they're pushing progressive overload. Everything is dialed in. But I had this one individual, which over the span of almost two full years, put on maybe two pounds of tissue, maybe. Yeah. And that was frustrating for me because I kept going back as a coach and saying, and, and it's not everything that I do is customized, but at the same time, there are certain key principles that, you know, whether it be progressive overload through weight, you know, putting more tonnage on the bar, total tonnage, or through volume accumulation or more sets and more reps um, that you see work, you know, these principles that Over time, yeah. generally work um, that we could say that are tried and true methods and nothing worked for this individual. And it was very frustrating for them. And it got to the point where I was getting weekly updates from videos with form. So I was, I was thinking, all right, well, maybe he's just not transferring, you know, the load correctly. So let me look at his biomechanics. Let me look at his, uh, exercise mechanics. Let me, uh, you know, change up his exercise selection. And it was to the point where we were dialing in something, you know, to the level we shouldn't have had to go to that level to get yeah. the results we were getting. And it was frustrating. And I, I think to myself, would I be motivated to, to continue training if that was my first couple of years in training, I wasn't getting any results, but at the same time, he had developed a love for it. Like I, I said previously, he was into dietetics. He was ready into nutrition. He had played, you know, and he was an athlete in college. So he had a love for training. So yeah. in my mind, I, we went back and we had this conversation at the cessation of us working together. He said, listen, you know, you know, it's nothing on you. You know, because a lot of times I took the blame and I said, listen, let's try this other method. You know, we've, we've tried this progression method for the last 12 weeks. You know, we're trying, um, instead of rinsing and repeating it, it's not working. So let's try something new. But I made sure that we weren't just program hopping. Cause I do feel like a lot of times newbies and, and beginners, when they see something doesn't work in the four, first four to six weeks, they automatically program hop. And you're never going to know if something's going to work unless you give it sufficient amount of time and you're consistent with it. So it got to the point he was two years in and he said, listen, you know, he didn't really realize the severity of how little he had gained, but he was right. obviously disappointed. But at the same time, he loved training and that was an outlet for him. You know, he worked a corporate job, you know, at that point he had gotten out of, out of college and it was just an outlet for him and he loved doing it. So he was going to continue doing it. He just wasn't, he didn't feel, and I didn't feel it was necessary for him to make the financial investment into me doing his programming. And it kind of made me 
sit back and think to myself, first of all, I think I had mid-tier genetics, you know, middle of the road, if that, because I've had to nail everything for 12 plus years just to get where I am now. And over the last couple of years, I haven't made much progress whatsoever, despite learning more, applying more, being more regimented, being more disciplined. But at the same time, I do this because I love it. I love training. I love helping other people. So I feel like if you're generally, and I know you're the same way, if you genuinely love training, you love nutrition, you love this industry as a whole, you'll continue doing it. And it's not just for the cosmetic and you know exterior results that you're getting. It's, it's more about the internal process, which I speak on a lot about being process oriented rather than results oriented, because if it was just about results. There are so many of us, you and I included, that if it was dependent, you know, our regimented lifestyle was dependent just on the results we got, we probably would have stopped years ago. For sure. Yeah, no, I think it's a great answer. Definitely comprehensive. I mean, ultimately, I, it definitely does factor in, I think, to your motivation how good you respond. I mean, there is just a difference and this happens with sports, anything, you know, you, you excel in a sport. Oh, you just happen to like it more. No surprise. You know, when you get compliments and everything like that, it feeds into it. But ultimately, I mean, the difference between this and a sport is that like, if you just suck at basketball and you just continuously suck, like you can just kind of drop it. And it's like, you know, whatever you do something else with fitness, everybody should be somewhat involved in fitness, some endeavor. And whether that is bodybuilding, powerlifting, CrossFit, whatever you want to do, hopefully you can find something where you maybe you don't excel in like to be a top athlete, but that you do better in and that you find a love for. And um, I think that is really important because that's certainly, you know, where I've not only just gravitated towards, but had to gravitate towards, you know, after I haven't made progress, you know, measurable progress in, you know, years now, it's, it's something where, but like, for instance, I mentioned I was at the beach this past weekend. So we went for two days, Saturday morning, even though like we were there for a vacation, I got up, we found a gym and we worked out at the gym. Why did I do that? Because I love to start my day like that. That wasn't like, oh man, I got to go to the gym. I wanted to find a gym I could work out at and do that. And when I go on my cruise in the next summer, I'm going to be at the gym every morning because I like to get up early. I'll get my stuff. It's just, it is part of what I do now. And um, that, that didn't come like right away. I mean, that took a while to get to, but it, it's a genuine feeling for me now. And hopefully people can reach that because if I was just doing it for the results at this point, I'd be pretty depressed, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I also feel like we have to we have to t kind of, you know, separate ourselves from just the physique goals because that is what's really prominent in our in our industry is just to look at the physique. And what I've taken from, you know, practitioners and people that I really look up to like Eric Helms or Lane Norton, especially natural bodybuilders that they've kind of, you know, I, I won't say they've reached their peak, but they've, they've seen a slower rate of progression is they've turned to other goals. So for instance, this individual client just really loved the outlet that it provided him with. It was a stress outlet. But at the same time, I know that when my rate of progression slows, when I get to an you know, older age bracket where I'm not able to continue competing or, or doing this or fitness modeling, it's going to be about educating myself even furthermore and then just putting into practice, whether it's, it's you know, providing me with immense gains or not, the things I'm learning. It's that continuous, that's really been my motivating factor. That's, we, we had spoken last time, I haven't competed this year. Obviously, most competitions were canceled, but I took this year off completely because I just wanted to focus on clients because that was giving me more reward than the stage was. Because I was starting to get burnt out on, on competing. I've competed 13 times over the last six years. Like it, it wasn't giving back to you know me back what I wanted it. But right. you know, I'm as passionate about putting or more passionate at this point about putting my clients on stage and seeing their progression and their excitement and their, you know, um, their results and I had my own. So I feel like if you could find a separate outlet within fitness. So for instance, Eric Helms now is more of a hybrid athlete. You know, he'll find other things. So when I see clients, I'll be honest with you, there are certain times that they're not getting the physique goals that they want. And, you know, a lot of people come to me for fat loss and I believe everyone can lose fat uh, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. But a lot of times when um, I have individuals that they just want muscle gain and we're trying to go for, you know, a lean growth phase or something of that sort. And they've gotten to the point where they've kind of maxed themselves out. And not that I think that there's a natty max you know, like this, this thing that you're, you're completely limited, but I see that the rate of progression is getting to the point that it's discouraging to them. Right. I start to turn over the internal motivators. So I'll say, listen, for this mesocycle, let's focus on performance. We're going to track, we're going to go after a key indicating lift. So whether it be your bench press, it be your squat, 
Um, you know, I know you did an overhead press cycle where that was your focus. Yeah. It's a different, you know, motivating factor, which you're able to focus your fitness efforts and your discipline towards, and it's giving you that internal drive. So it becomes yet again about the process. Hey, I'm going to, I'm making sure that I'm, you know, hitting my, my, um, top lifts. I'm making sure I'm, I'm providing progressive overload. I might've not progressed my physique within that mesocycle or that block of training, but I progressed this lift that I've, I've always wanted to smash a PR on. So right. being able to kind of turn your, your intentions and your focus onto something that's still positive, but within fitness is something that I feel that when I do get into an age where I'm unable to progress, whether it be in the gym or with my physique, it's going to be about continuing my education where it's going to be about, you know, looking towards another performance vector in this where I'm still training because it's healthy for me and something that I love, but it's not just about the way I look. And I think that's something that's a huge wake up call to a lot of physique athletes that are just about their body because I've been there. I've been the person, you know, that, that spent years fitness modeling and it was only about what I look like. And, and that's why I kind of have gotten more away from the sport of, you know, or the, the competitive aspect for myself because I don't want to be that individual. I want this to be a positive part of my life, not something that if I'm not making the rate of progression that I expect or that I want, that I all of a sudden fall out of love with it because that's not what it should be about. Totally, man. I think that that's definitely a great message, probably a good point to end on here. I think uh, as we talk, you know, I'm thinking of more questions for you and I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll talk on Instagram further and we can always get you back on for a part two. Uh, but, you know, until then, where can people find more of your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to find me is going to be uh, on Instagram. I answer all my DMs. I try to do a lot of educational posts and content, um, constantly sharing stuff. So that's at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And then also for coaching, um, if anyone's interested or just has general questions, I, I field questions all day. It's bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. Awesome, man. And I'll definitely have a link to your Instagram down below for anybody who wants to check it out. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.